0: Turning our attention now to Denver during the 2020 George Floyd Rebellions where the FB where an FBI paid in excuse me, where the FBI paid an informant with a violent past tens of thousands of dollars to infiltrate the Black Lives Matter movement. We we're joined this morning by Trevor Aronson, a journalist and author of The Terror Factory inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. He is also a contributing writer for the Intercept and the host of a podcast called Alphabet Boys which reveals secret investigations of the FBI, DEA, ATF, and other agencies and includes secret undercover recordings that the government never wanted the public to hear. Alphabet Boys, the podcast, is rolling out its first season with new episodes weekly, and this season, as well as Trevor's latest piece for The Intercept, is focused, as I mentioned, on FBI infiltration in a Black Lives Matter organizing in Denver. Good morning, Trevor.
1: Hey, Kat. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for joining. Trevor, before you and I get into conversation, we're going to roll a clip from your podcast, Alphabet Boys. Kirsten, let's have it.
1: We're going to expose, using secret undercover recordings, how the Federal Bureau of Investigation infiltrated and undermined the racial justice movement during the summer of 2020. This is not a story the FBI wants told. I want to take you back to the summer of 2020. The pandemic is here, and a lot is still really unknown. For months, millions of Americans have been out of work, locked up in their homes, and left deeply uncertain about the future. The nation is a tinderbox of anger.
0: What's his name? George Floyd!
1: Racial justice activists have come out in force in cities nationwide to protest against police brutality, resulting in an unprecedented explosion of activism around the broader Black Lives Matter movement. The economy is falling apart, people are getting shot, and nobody knows what's going to happen next. Plus, there's this boogeyman hiding behind every corner.
0: He's playing into Antifa being the boogeyman, being behind these protests. You know, Fox News is still running riot porn, acting like the riots are still happening
1: today. But what if I were to tell you there is an Antifa boogeyman? He was real. He drove a silver hearse. And the back of that hearse was filled with guns lots and lots of guns yeah it was just this badass dude you know talking about he worked in the foreign military he was for the black lives matter movement it just seemed interesting you know
0: That is a clip from Alphabet Boys, the podcast by Trevor Aronson, who is our guest this morning. Trevor, so this all plays out in Denver in 2020 during the George Floyd Rebellions. Talk more. We heard a little bit of that clip, but talk more about the political climate there at that time and why things were particularly hot in the streets of Denver, Colorado.
1: Sure. So, so Denver w- was one of the, I guess you could say, hot spots during the summer of 2020 where there's a lot of protests. A number of those protests did turn destructive. And in, in Denver in particular, you know, like, and this this is happening in other cities obviously too, but in, in Denver what happened was that in 2019 there was a young black man named Elijah McLean who was stopped by a police in Aurora, which is a suburb of, um, of Denver. Uh, police stopped him for really no reason at all. Um, there's questions about how the initial encounter went down but by the time police body camera picks up elijah's on the ground they've got him um, handcuffed behind his back and they're doing a a chokehold. and he's telling them i'm you know i'm just different i'm just different i'm not resisting and um paramedics arrive and they they injected him believing he was on drugs which was not the case they injected him with um, ketamine, but they accidentally, presumably um, gave him a, 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 an excessive dose and it ended up causing him to go into a coma and he he he, he, he died. And um, so that initially in 2019 sparked a wave of protests in Denver. Those protests began to cool down around February of 2020. Then of course George Floyd is murdered in May and that then reignites all of the anger re- related to Elijah McClain. And so Denver saw, you know, despite being, you know, not the biggest of American cities, saw some really large protests during the summer of 2020, and it was in Denver. That the the FBI then became very kind of concerned, and so you know, for me, what what makes this story so interesting is that that summer, having been someone who's covered the FBI for a very long time, I was really curious how they were reacting to the summer of 2020 and what they were doing, and it was my suspicion that they would use informants and sting operations the way they have in counterterrorism investigations, but I, I could never prove that. And so then, uh, about a year ago, I finally got wind of what was happening in Denver, and it was really you know, the first look we've seen uh, behind the curtain of, of what the FBI was doing that summer in investigating racial justice activists.
0: And Trevor Aronson, I wanna get into the, the microcosms of what happened in the streets in Denver, but I would like you to paint a broader picture of that time period, what kinds of behaviors the FBI was engaging in in response to the rebellions and escalation of the movement for black lives across the country, and feel free to get into um, that term that we saw come out of uh, describing folks like me, black identity extremists.
1: That's right. Yeah, so the context of this, I think, is hugely important because it it may explain some of the motivation for the FBI's um, tactics during that summer. So during the first year of the Trump administration, um, the FBI in 2017 came out with a new term for what they, they believed or they described as kind of a rising form of domestic terrorism or domestic extremism, which was called black identity extremism. And it seemed to group together all sorts of ideologies that had attracted a black following in the United States. So everything from, you know, left-wing movements of black nationalism to right-wing movements, um, such as the sovereign citizen movement, uh, known as the uh, the more science temple. Uh, these, these ideologies have nothing in common and yet the, the FBI kind of lumped them together simply because these were ideologies that to some degree had attracted a large black following. The, the report that they put out involved six crimes after the, a, after Michael Brown's death in Ferguson, uh, committed by black Americans that had no connection with one another and no unifying political ideology, but the FBI, in a fairly intellectually dishonest way, used these crimes to say, okay, we have post-Ferguson, we have uh, kind of a radicalization of black politics, and that this is a you know kind of new domestic extremism called black identity extremism. Of course, this was met initially with widespread criticism on Capitol Hill and in the news media, And the FBI then kind of covering its tracks, then said, "Okay, we're going to abandon that term. And they they created a new term called racially motivated violent extremism, where they lumped together violence from white supremacists and and far right groups with so-called black identity extremist violence. And so for that reason, when the summer of 2020 started, you know, I I think it's fair to say that there was a predisposition by the FBI institutionally as a result of the BIE designation um, to see the these protests not necessarily as. First Amendment protected activity, but as things that could turn turn violent. And there was really no reason for them to think that other than their own biases. And what's interesting about the Denver case that we look at is that in this particular case, the FBI um, used an informant who came to them with nothing more than First Amendment protected activities as information. He was saying that some of these demonstrators were using incendiary rhetoric. You know, they're saying like, like, let's burn this city down, let's get explosives, things that are questionable, but nonetheless protected by free speech. And yet the FBI used that information to launch this undercover sting where they used an informant who basically became, over time, a leader in the racial justice movement. And I think why this revelation is significant is that this is the first look we have about what the FBI was doing. Previously, we've known about some very questionable things that happened in 2020, right? Like, for example, DHS officials in military-style uniforms ad- abducted people off the streets in California. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In, in, in Portland, Oregon, um, there were military spy planes used in California and elsewhere to monitor the, monitor these protests. But what's been an un- what's been an open question until now? has been how has the FBI or how did the FBI respond in the summer of 2020? And and what we can now say through this case in Denver is that they used an undercover informant who in many ways took on a number of the tactics that had been used during COINTELPRO against the Black Panthers and other groups. Uh, for example, this informant um, would accuse real leaders and, and real uh, activists of being FBI informants themselves. That then sowed division and created confusion Created a leadership vacuum that he then filled, and then when he was in a position of leadership, he was then encouraging specific activists to um, turn violent, to get involved in violence, while at the same time targeting specific activists and trying to set them up in crimes.
0: Okay, Trevor, I'm gonna, I'm gonna back us up just a little bit because I want to walk our listeners uh, through your article. So let, let, let's the article, by the way, is called the snitch in the silver hearse. Um, let's talk about who is uh, the snitch, Michael Adam Windecker, the second um, and what was up with the silver hearse he was driving around in.
1: Yeah, so it, it, it you couldn't make this up if you tried, right? The FBI's informant drove over Silverhurst um, as he went to these demonstrations. And um, so so his name is Michael Adam Windecker II, though he went by Mickey. Mickey Windecker is how he's better known. And this is a man who has a long history of violence and deception. Uh, when he was 20 years old, he was convicted of sexual assault for, uh, at the age of 20, having sex with a 14 year old, though he claimed the woman or the girl was, he claimed he didn't know the girl was underage. Um, in 2002, he was sent to prison for two years in Colorado for menacing with a weapon. He stuck a gun in someone's face and said he was a police officer looking for a suspect. Um, while in prison, according to the FBI records, he was approached for a murder for hire. Um, instead of committing the crime, he then becomes a jailhouse informant and uh, builds helps build a case against the people who tried to hire him. And from there, we have a number of, of um, we built, we built a, you know, a number of pieces of evidence to, to show that he was working with law enforcement from that period off and on, from uh, the early 2000s, ultimately before the racial justice movement in, in 2020. And so you know, this is a man who learned over a long period of time that he um, could make money working for police. At the same time, he's a man who's committed uh, offenses all across the country. There were arrests for him in Colorado, Nevada, Texas, and Florida. And so when he goes to the FBI in the summer of 2020, you know, the FBI knows all of this about him. It's actually in their FBI file about the, the crimes he's committed. And, um, you know, this is not someone who was reporting what he thought was information that could keep Americans safe or, you know, that what he thought were real crimes going on. This is a man who knew that if he could provide information, he could get money, in some cases, lots of money. And so the FBI ended up paying him thousands of dollars Every few weeks in cash, in order to provide information about activists in Denver, and then also to essentially encourage their um, violence. And you know, in the last week of August, when he was firmly installed as a as a leader of the racial justice movement in, in Denver, in the last week of August, twenty twenty, a number of those demonstrations turned violent, and you know, demonstrators had you know broken broken bones. Uh, police officers had seventy injuries. And this particular informant, Mickey Windecker, was responsible for encouraging a lot of the violence that occurred that week. Whether we can pin all of the blame on him, that's hard to say. But what we can say is that these events that turned violent were, were events that he had organized, he had held hype up, and he had played a leadership role in getting started.
0: Talk about how he got into how he got into leadership. How did he infiltrate and make his way up the ranks inside of the Black Lives Matter? I mean, this this is a a white dude (laughs) Uh, with tats. How he got into a leadership position inside of the Black Lives Matter movement in Denver.
1: Yeah, this is one of the interesting things. So I think when people see a picture of him and I've seen people commenting on Twitter and elsewhere along these lines that, you know, this is a guy, a white guy uh, pushing 50 years old. He's got tattoos all over his body. He dresses in military fatigues with patches on the sleeves. A number of activists described how he looked like a biker to them. Um, so this is not some someone that you would see at the racial at a racial justice demonstration and think he he fits right in. This is a guy who, who stuck out. And for for a number of re- for for all of those reasons, a lot of the activists were initially quite skeptical of him. Um, a, a lot of the activists told me like, hey, I remember thinking this guy must be a cop but there's no way the, cop would, the cops would send in somebody looking just like a cop. And so there was a certain sense of like, <laughs> oh, he's, he's too cliche, he can't be an informant. But the, the thing he did that was very effective and, and quite sophisticated, even if it was by accident, was that he quickly allied himself with um, activists that were part of the Young Democratic Socialists of America, or YDSA. And these were younger activists, these were activists who were somewhat naive, and um, these were activists who quickly believed that he was the real deal. And so an, what a number of activists told me was that when he showed up, they were like, this guy looks really suspicious. But then they saw him around these younger allies and they thought, well, you know, if these YDS, these young, young YDSA activists trust him, he must be okay. And you know, so it appears that he, he used that association to help bolster his credibility within the movement, despite, you know, looking like he shouldn't be part of that movement. And, and that was a big part of how he entered the movement. And then what he did to, to ultimately rise up in leadership is identify the people who were the effective organizers, who were the leaders, and he spread rumors about them, specifically that they were working with the police or working with the FBI. And a lot of activists then uh, started to pu- pull away from those leaders for fear that the rumors were true, that they were working for the FBI. And Mickey, the informant, then kind of rose up as a result of that leadership vacuum. I mean, obviously, what's so troubling about this is that this is exactly what the FBI did during COINTELPRO, where they used informants to accuse the real leaders of movements of being informants and then helped to kind of undermine these organizations. And so that's why I think what happened in Denver is so significant. It wasn't just that the FBI informant was trying to set specific activists up in crimes. He was sowing confusion and mistrust in a way that ultimately undermined the political movement and and really had nothing to do with Investigations of crimes at all.
0: Yeah, when the counter-insurgent turns and calls you a counter-insurgent, and we 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 see that in the article in Denver, and we're, we're actually seeing that in in cities uh, uh, across the country. Um, you're you're talk about the the fallout for some of these organizers, right? Like there are some folks that actually paid consequences as a result of Mickey's actions.
1: For sure. So one of the the things that to- to contextualize this with is that that Mickey tried very hard to pull together a conspiracy that would have made national news and, and with the FBI's instructions. And so what he initially tried to do was um, try to kind of stitch together this supposed plot to assassinate Colorado's attorney general. And he targeted two black activists um, as people he was hoping to recruit into this apparent conspiracy. Ultimately, both of those activists said no, they backed out. They wanted nothing to do with this. Um, But one of those activists, a man named Zebedias Hall, who backed out and didn't want anything to do with this assassination plot, was asked by Mickey Windecker, the informant, if he would buy him a gun. And Zeb, you know, had never bought a gun. He didn't understand, you know, quite what the laws were. And Mickey was this man who made it clear that he was a felon, but in the back of his hearse were all these guns. You know, he was seen carrying AR-15 assault rifles, um, and so Zeb was kind of, you know, was confused by it, and was like, "Well, is this guy allowed to have guns? I don't know." And at the same time, what F- what the FBI and Mickey did was really make Mickey's identity, you know, a part of his identity. This prospect of like looming physical violence. Like Mickey showed pictures of dead ISIS fighters on his phone. He claimed to have killed people. He he had a documented history of violent um, crimes, and so. What most activists told me is that once they got close to Mickey they felt like they couldn't back away from him or not do the things he asked them to do because they would face physical harm. And, and Zebedias Hall felt this way when Mickey gives him money and says, can you buy me a gun? And Zeb does. And ultimately says, I did it because I was terrified of this man. I I thought he would. I didn't think he was an FBI informant. I thought he was just this like uh, this very violent, unpredictable man. And what would he do if I said no? And so you know, as we describe in the show, you know, Zeb ultimately is charged with transferring a a firearm to a felon, pleads guilty, and has um, was sentenced to three years of probation. Um, But I think for Zeb. You know, and the reason he participated in the podcast was he feels that, you know, he made a mistake, he admits it. But the the real villain here was the FBI in trying to undermine the movement and trying to set activists up in crimes, in, in some cases, very elaborate crimes like an assassination of a politician, but were ultimately unsuccessful in doing any of that. Right. Like the only crime that the FBI was able to generate was this gun charge against Zeb, which is a ridiculous one it was the fbi's money used to purchase a gun for the fbi's informant that then went right back to the fbi so technically was it a crime sure but it it wasn't a crime that would have happened were it not for the fbi making everything possible and and so ultimately that was the the extent of the criminal prosecution that we could document around the fbi investigation but that said you know a number of activists told me that Um, A number of the groups that were participating in the racial justice movement in Denver disbanded. A number of groups that had allyships ended up breaking apart, um, in large part because of the confusion and the snitch jacketing that was going on um, as a result of Mickey's undercover operation there.
0: Your podcast, Alphabet <clears off the throat> Boys, has some pretty intense, original, and previously secret audio that you describe. Uh, saying it was never intended for the public to hear. How did you get that material? What was that process like? And what has the backlash from the FBI been to you?
1: So the so so the the, the recordings that we have are um, the recordings that Mickey Winter, the undercover informant, made while working for the FBI. And so we have about a, a dozen hours of his conversations. Uh, with both activists during the sting, as well as um, initial conversations with his FBI handlers when he would pick up the recording device. And what we're trying to do in Alphabet Boys is use these recordings to, you know, tell in a narrative way over 10 episodes, the story of this investigation in Denver. Um, And then also by using these recordings, allow the listener to have like you know, a seat at the table as this is happening. You know, it's a, this kind of, it's a bit voyeuristic perhaps, but I think it's a, it's critical for public understanding of how these things work to hear these recordings between the FBI undercover informant and the targets of his investigations. And then of course we interview the targets of those investigations, people like Zebedias Hall, who were um, who were investigated by Mickey to get their perspective and tell, tell it in a documentary fashion. Um, you know, the, we reached out to the FBI multiple times um, they declined to make anyone available for an interview. They also declined to respond in writing to a long list of questions I sent, documenting all the claims in the series. Um, and then the, the podcast itself has gotten a lot of press. Most of the news organizations that have, that have written about it have gone to the FBI and um, the FBI has continued to say no comment. Um, just, just two days ago, Ron Wyden's office um, announced that they are calling for an ex- explanation and greater accountability given what's documented in the show. And so my hope is that you know if we can draw more attention to this case in Denver, um, maybe there will be some accountability for the FBI in this regard. I also think, and this is an important part for me, is that I don't believe Denver was anomalous. I don't think that FBI sting operations operating that yeah. summer only happened in Denver. Um, I think this is a case where this is the one we know about, and so we tell that story, but I think I think it's really critically important for the public to understand uh, how pervasive this tactic was and and in what other cities this happened. Because as I'm sure you and your listeners know, I mean, I've had a lot of activists in other cities tell me that they had Mickey-like characters in their groups. And there was a lot of suspicion about whether there was infiltration by police or FBI informants or undercovers.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's part of why, I mean, in addition to the the brilliant reporting and, and your podcast, uh, it's part of why I really wanted to cover this, right? That, that people think about COINTELPRO and those state tactics as being something that happened in the past, and we're actually getting ready to delve in the past uh, with Mama uh, Akua and Jiri. Um, but these tactics are alive and well today, um, certainly during the rebellions, but folks should not sleep on the fact that as we continue to organize for our liberation, the government will continue to intervene in that organizing. Trevor Aronson, thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and dis that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawandisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: We all we got, fam.